So you are probably aware that tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. You might be aware of it because your kids are home from school. Um, you might be aware of it because it's a, a holiday where you're not going to get mail. You might be aware of it because uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was a very important person to you. Um, you're going to be aware of it because if you hop on social media tomorrow, you're going to be inundated with all, uh, every brand in the country is going to be sharing some sort of quote. And it's probably going to be a quote from the I Have a Dream speech. It's going to be about... Uh, about love and how we ought to love everybody, the, these quotes and pictures of, um, of Martin Luther King Jr. And 54 years after his death, you can almost think that like this celebration of Martin Luther King, the man and the, his ministry and the movement that he led is almost like inevitable. 54 years later, how could how could we not all, we, there's lots of things that we can't agree on. How could we not all agree on the importance of Martin Luther King Jr., the man, his ministry, and the movement that he helped start, right? Um, just a few years ago, a polling company that takes, does all sorts of polls um, did a public opinion poll on uh, historical figures, and what they found was that Martin Luther King Jr. has a 90% approval rating. 90% of people can't agree on anything, but 90% of people in, in this poll in the country have said that they approved of Martin Luther King Jr. Honestly, I was surprised that it was only 90%, right? Um, how could we not agree on this, on him? Well, the thing is, after 54 years, sometimes the way that we remember or the, the things that we want to remember of how history went down can change a little bit. And near the end of his life, um, just about the only thing that was inevitable with Martin Luther King's uh, legacy was that he was maybe not going to be remembered and celebrated very well. See, after uh, helping lead the push for voting rights, um, Martin Luther King Jr. then started getting into all of these other areas where he saw systemic injustice that needed to be addressed. Um, housing and... Um, poverty, and eventually the Vietnam War. Again, you're going to see lots of quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. shared on Facebook and other social media tomorrow. My guess is you're not going to see some of these. I've got two quotes for you. This first one is from his book, Chaos or Community. Overwhelmingly, America is still struggling with uh, ir the irresolution and contradictions it has been sincere and even ardent in welcoming some change, but too quickly, apathy and disinterest rise to the surface when the next logical steps are to be taken. Laws are passed in a crisis mood after a Birmingham or a Selma, but no substantial fervor survives the formal signing of legislation. The recording of the law in itself is treated as the reality of the reform. Whew. How about this one? I must make, this is from a letter from Birmingham Jail. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that our great stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the White Citizens Council or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice 
who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises us to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Oh, those hit home. Um, by the end of his life, what do you think Martin Luther King's approval rating was? Any guesses? 50? Lower. Lower. Higher than, higher than 13. 25%. 25% of the American public approved of Martin Luther King Jr. at the time of his death. Hmm. That's something. You see, many, I mean, he alluded to it in, in those quotes there even. Many of the people who maybe agreed in, in principle with what he was trying to get at would have said, you know, you need to not talk so much about this, or you need to not talk so loudly about this. People were worried that he was going too far, that he was too radical, that he was too loud, that he was too angry. Maybe even too violent. Yeah, Martin Luther King Jr., too angry, too violent. To the point where only 25% of people approved with what he was doing. And yet, this didn't, this didn't make him turn back from, from what he was doing. Instead, Martin Luther King Jr. knew something important. That often justice, often righteous indignation, righteous anger, is actually a sign of and ex an extension of love. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, as we have started this new church, as we've started this new year, we have also started a new series, which we're calling Come and See. We are looking at the, uh, the book of John in the New Testament. John is one of the four biographies about the life of Jesus that we have in our Bibles. And uh, John is really focused in on what the experience of Jesus is like. Uh, while the other biographers may have said, here are the things that you need to know about Jesus, these are, the, these are the facts as we see them, John was more saying, what does it feel like to be around this Jesus? What, what does this tell us about God and how we ought to then live in the world? And I couldn't help but thinking, as I was reading this, this story that we're going to talk about today, this past week, that Jesus would have had terrible approval ratings. Again, 2,000 years later, we all love Jesus. Even if you're not a Christian, most people love Jesus and love what he was about. Uh, and we often view Jesus exclusively through this, uh, this lens of love and acceptance. Turn the other cheek, right? You get hit on one cheek, turn the other cheek, and you take it there as well. And that we, just in John 2, the beginning of the chapter, the story that we discussed last week, Jesus shows up at a wedding, the wine runs out, and he turns the water into wine. Who is going to disapprove of the guy who brings wine to the party? Right? He'd probably get a 90% approval rating. Well, then he goes straight from being the guy who brings wine to the party to pulling stunts like this one. 
immediately after this story of turning water into wine, we hear this. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. Now the Jewish feast of Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple courts those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting at tables. So he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple courts with the sheep and the oxen. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold the doves, he said, Take these things away from here. Do not make my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will devour me. Now, I've, I've mentioned before that, um, that John is like the color outside the lines version of the Jesus story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tried to produce an, uh, an orderly, factual account, and John is more like, uh, let, let's talk about the experience. So he often includes stories that the other three don't include at all. He excludes stories that all of the other three include. Well, this is an example of a story that he includes that all of the others do, but he changes some of the details of to make a little bit of a different emphasis. So in the first three, uh, there, there's important differences between the other three and John's account of this story, known as the cleansing of the temple. First of all, in the first three, this story doesn't appear until the very last days of Jesus' life. Here, it's appearing in the second chapter of the book. Now, this is like some narrative framing. This, this story is probably placed here to say Jesus' ministry begins with Passover and it ends with Passover. Um, if you want to talk about that some more, I'd be happy to talk with you offline. Or um, we're going to talk about it once we get close to Easter because we'll be wrapping up the story of John. We're doing... Uh, Communion later, I'm going to mention a little bit there, but we're not going to spend all of our time on that difference. The second difference, though, is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus shows up at the temple, he sees what's going on, and immediately he has a response. Immediately he goes in and he starts flipping over tables. It's like a visceral reaction. He sees what's happening and he, he just, like, can't help but respond in that moment. That's not what happens in John. He shows up at the temple— he sees what's happening. He sees that people are being taken advantage of, that this place of worship where everyone is supposed to be able to come before God has been, become exclusionary, has become oppressive even. And he takes the time to go and find the materials and braids a whip. And then goes into the temple and then drives all of them out. He braids a whip. This might seem like it is contradictory to this other picture of Jesus that we have. This Jesus is all about love and acceptance and, and turn the other cheek, right? But, but that's not how I see it, and that's not how I think that um, we are supposed to see it even reading this story 2,000 years later. Because sometimes justice, righteous anger even, is an extension of love. It is an act of love in action. I, I need to mention that this story 
has been used across the 2,000 years of church history by some of the biggest names in church history to advocate for war and violence. It's a, it's a really complicated argument that they use, and it goes something like this. I hope, hope you can follow along. Jesus was violent, so we can be violent. <laughs> Jesus was violent, so we can be violent. So we can, we can kill our enemies. I mean, there, there's stories from 400 years ago, some of the reformers using this as an excuse to burn their enemies, other Christians that they just disagreed with, because Jesus was violent. Um, beyond the fact that that's not what's happening in the story, it, it misses the whole point of the story about the experience of God. John was trying to get his readers, us today, to understand what is the experience of God, what does that tell us about what God is like, and how does that translate into who we are and what we are supposed to do in this world. And I think that this story is not about us saying Jesus was violent so we can be violent, but that God cares about the world not being like it should be. God cares about injustice and even gets mad about injustice. That we ought to care about the world not being as it should be, that we ought to get righteously mad about the world not being as it should be, and that we ought to be willing to do something about it. These, these past two years, um, we've learned a whole lot about our world, right? We've learned a whole lot about the way that our world works, and a whole lot about the ways that our world does not work like it's supposed to or ought to. We've seen a whole lot of examples about people who are working for the common good, and a whole lot of examples of people working for their own good. I cannot tell you the number of people that I have had come to me over the last couple weeks. As a pastor, you get a lot that's, um, people tell you things <laughs> that they might not tell other people. Uh, they confide in you. And um, there's been a lot of people who have come to me and confided in me that they're not only tired, they're not only fatigued by the pandemic and by Zoom and, and all of the things that come along with that, but they're, they're angry. They're angry that the world is not as it should be. They're, they're angry about seeing people that they think are just like actively perpetuating the world as it should be rather than doing things that, uh, that make it the world as it, as it should be. To the point where... Um, I've actually started floating the idea of starting a Grove group, a study group specifically for people who are dealing with anger, and I've mentioned that to a few more people who haven't brought that up to me, and they're like, I'd be in that group. And so what I, what I want the takeaway to be today is simply this. Two things, two points that you can walk away with that I have found comforting in this weird crazy time and maybe you will find comforting as well the first one is this it is okay to be angry that the world is not as it should be it is even holy and jesus-like to be angry that, that the world is not as it should be and number two 
If you find yourself in that situation where you see these injustices going on, where you see that the world is not working as it should, try to find some way to do something constructive with it. Uh, Here at the Grove, the way that we talk about um, pursuing justice and making our communities and our world an even better place to live is the idea of cultivating the common good. Cultivation. How many of you have um, ever planted anything? One of the things about cultivation is that it does not happen like that, right? Cultivation takes time, and it takes work, and it takes creativity. It takes attention. It often takes other people. I mean, if the job is big enough, you are not able to, to do it on your own. You have to invite other people into that process as well. The same is true as cultivating the common good, cultivating uh, a just world and a just community. Uh, I'll also say that not everything works in every situation for every person for all time. So my guess is that you braiding a whip and going somewhere (laughs) where you're seeing an injustice is not going to work very well. I am not advocating that. Everybody online watching as well, I'm not advocating you go out and braid a whip. Another thing that's probably not the most effective is uh, reflected in this cartoon, which I stumbled upon in the last couple of years. Are you coming to bed? I can't. This is important. What? Someone is wrong on the internet. You're probably not going to succeed in cultivating the common good by yelling at people on the internet. But there are plenty of ways, endless ways, where if you are passionate about a thing, about an injustice, about a way that you see the world not working as it should, where you can contribute. I mean, just here at the Grove, if you care about climate justice, we have a team for that. If you care about uh, LGBTQ issues, we have a team for that. If you care about food insecurity in this community, we have a team that works with community partners on making sure that people are fed. If you care about the school right next door, we're continuing to have conversations with the school right next door about how we can support their students, how we can support their teachers for dealing with, right now, the world not as it should be. If you have another idea about this thing where you're like, the world is not as it should be, I'm passionate about this thing, I think other people might be passionate about it too, bring it up, let's figure out how to go and tackle that together. So be encouraged. If you see the world is not as it should be and it makes you angry, it is okay. And figure out a way to start doing something about it. To cultivating, to be cultivating the common good. And in the process, who knows, you might just be the conduit of love. Of a love that is in action. This is the way of Martin Luther King Jr., and this is the way of Jesus.